centers of the world. This is Bloomberg Markets with Alex Steele and Guy Johnson. It is 30 minutes into the U.S. trading day on this Wednesday, June 1st. Here are the top market stories we're following for you at this hour. Let the QT begin. The Fed starts shrinking its massive balance sheet today. It's a runoff versus tightening. We'll look for where strains in the financial markets may appear. And finding deep value, Howard Marks of Oak Tree sees opportunities in growth as well as India and China. More from our exclusive interview with the legendary investor. And jolting the jobs market. The latest read on hiring, inflation and manufacturing with Tim Fiore, chair of ISM's Manufacturing Business Survey Committee. From New York. I'm Alex Steele, my co-host in London, Anna Edwards. Guy Johnson is off today. Welcome, everyone, uh, to Bloomberg Markets. First day of June, equities on the front foot, economic data front and center. Yeah, econ uh, economic data front and center. European markets struggling to find much direction, although U.S. markets giving a, a little bit of that. But it is a bit varied. It doesn't feel uh, as if perhaps there's all that much commitment behind it because we're quite low on volumes here in Europe. So we'll return to that theme. Let's get to some of that economic data that Alex was just mentioning. And we'll go first to the jolts jolting the U.S. economy. See what you did there, Alex, in the, uh, in the headlines <laughs> like that. So um, we've got jolts job openings coming in at 11,400. 11, so that's 11.4 million, essentially. And that is pr almost in line with what we were expecting. 11.35 million was what we were expecting. It's down a little bit on the prior period, but it is more than the survey. And if this is part of the continual recovery in the jobs picture in the United States, then we're certainly still seeing that. We got down to levels of around 5 million. That Back in 2020, a lot of people starting to ask questions. When do we get more job openings in the U.S. economy than we have uh, than, than we have unemployed people in the U.S. economy? We certainly got to that particular landmark uh, event here in the U.K. some time ago. So interesting to keep an eye on the tightness of this labor market right now, Alex. All right, here in the U.S., you got the ISM. Uh, manufacturing prices paid, new orders all coming in stronger than estimated, particularly the new orders uh, coming in there at 55.1, and the manufacturing index coming in over 56. The one lighter area, though, that missed estimates a touch is ISM employment coming in under 50, which is usually that expansionary mark. Uh, equities, though, not reacting that much at all. You still have S&P up by about four-tenths of 1%. Let's dig into the numbers here. Because the question really becomes, what kind of demand destruction do we see from higher inflation? That's what the Fed's watching. That's what markets are going to be watching. want to bring in Tim Fiore, chair of the ISM's Manufacturing Business Survey Committee. Hey, Tim, it's great to see you. What was your biggest takeaway from the ISM today? Well, not to avoid the employment number, which we'll get to shortly. I think the, the greatest news here is that the demand, after softening slightly in April, bounced right back. And all four sub-indexes that I use to track demand all reacted positively. The customer inventory number, the uh, the backlog number, particularly new export order was a little bit soft, but not a big surprise with Europe and China, and uh, and the new order number popping up. So it feels good. I mean, the sentiment of the panel was five to one positive about future demand, which is which is you know makes you feel real good. So I think demand is is stable, solid. Uh, there was a little bit of concern in the April timeframe, uh, but it seems to be rectified. But 
there are some signs in some industry sectors that we're seeing a little bit of slowing in expansion, primarily in those sectors that support the building industry. We had comments from mm. the chemical industry sectors and uh, fabricated metal products and non-metallic materials where there's some indication of some softening, not, not a big surprise. Timothy, good morning. Let, let me ask you about that a little bit more then, because you, you, from what you said at the beginning, it sounded as if any weakness was coming from overseas, uh, and actually the US dimension here was really strong, but then there is maybe some weakness in construction. Talk us through, through that a little more. Right, so, uh, so I, I go through the comments and I look for people feeling that things are slowing a bit. It's, it's time to start to look for that, because at some point it will happen. And uh, I, you know, I came up with slightly less than 10% of the general comments indicating that things may be slowing, not things are slowing. So there's 18 industry sectors that make up the manufacturing economy. I looked into those and there were three that kind of stood out. Non-metallic materials, that's a big building construction area, chemical products, it's a foundation element that goes into a lot of other materials and fabricated metal products, but that does the same. So, I mean, it's not widespread. It seems to be industry specific. And I guess not that big of a surprise given what's happening now with the housing market. Yeah, Tim, I wanted to get your take on that. Is it more of a supply issue, right? We don't have the construction material to build the stuff or is it an underlying demand issue? Well, the indications were it's demand, but it could also be that there's overordering and that people have you know, really pumped up the, uh, the, the purchase order pipeline over the last year to account for long lead times. We're still sitting at record lead times. It hasn't budged. Uh, you did see that the price index eased a little bit, which is a positive sign. And our supplier delivery index came off a little bit too, which is a positive sign, but we're not seeing dramatic movements in those. We're seeing slow and steady improvement, you know, post, uh, post uh, the Russia invasion of Ukraine. So, you know, we're moving in the right direction here, but uh, it's going to be mm. slow. And, you know, let's get to the employment numbers. So we did contract, not a really big surprise. We're, you know, we're dealing with very significant quits. It seems to be slowing a little bit, but not very much. And uh, although our panelist companies are getting better at hiring people, they're still losing people. Uh, as you saw just recently, I think we set records in the month of uh, April, I think it was. So that's still continuing. Uh, there's still a chase for wages. And you know, until that employment number really comes back, our production number isn't going to get into that high 50s that we're really looking for. Okay, and let me ask you about any clues you've got for us, Timothy, around inflation. Uh, looking at the prices paid component here, the actual number coming in at 82, above the survey, but lower than the prior period. Any clues as to where the inflation narrative goes? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's in transportation, it's in energy for sure. Uh, there seems to be some topping off. We just recently did our forecast for the second half of the year, and we're feeling that the, the prices are up about 11.4% compared to December of last year. But we believe by the end of the year, it'll be up 11.1%. So that kind of indicates that we're at the peak of growth and that we'll have a slow come down, not even, you know, 100 basis points here, but we'll come down slightly as we close on the year, which means that we're moving more towards equilibrium. I think it's, uh, you know, I think this is a really strong month. Uh, at this point in our 24-month manufacturing expansion cycle, it's really positive. As I've mentioned before, uh, our, our typical cycles are about 34 months. I, I feel that this one will be longer uh, if, if the Fed doesn't do something on the interest rate side next year that could slow it down faster. But I think we're in a great trajectory here. There's still a lot of demand out there. Supply chain is getting better. And you can see it with some of the sub-indexes, we're still struggling with conversion. And that's primarily due to labor issues on the factory floor, which is driven really by the quits there.
Hey, Tim, um, maybe an unfair question, but if the Fed looks at this number, is this the kind of number where they're like, okay, great, economy is good enough, but demand's too strong still. We're going to have to hike a lot more than just 250 basis point hikes over the next uh, few months. Well, you know, I can't speak to that, but sitting, sitting at 1% federal clause rate is still really low. I mean, it's a long way to go towards what is, is equilibrium. So I, I don't think that they would be disappointed in this number. I don't, it's, it doesn't feel like it's an overheating number, and it doesn't feel like it's it's collapsing towards the 50 level. So, I mean, if we ran 55 to 58 for the next six to nine months, that would be really good. I mean, every two and a half bit, uh, points here in, in the PMI is approximately 8 to 10% improvement month over month. So, you know, we're doing you know much better than April. Timothy, thanks very much for joining us. Good to speak to you. Timothy Fiore, uh, Chair for the ISM Manufacturing Business Survey Committee. Let's get to some other breaking news we've had just in the last few minutes, and that comes to us from Bank of Canada. Of course, we're monitoring rate hikes across the globe, as that seems to be the, the dominant narrative, not in China, of course, but at many other places. Bank of Canada hikes key policy rates by 50 basis points to 1.5%. They're warning, another red headline tells me that the Bank of Canada is warning it could be even more Forceful if needed. And there was going to be a lot of focus on the hawkishness or otherwise of the statement. This is the second jumbo hike we've had from the Bank of Canada. Another one is currently due in July. That would be a third. Do they pause after that? How will the market in interpret that more forceful if needed? Does that mean could do more than 50? I mean, 50 is what they've done twice and an expectation in the markets that they will do another 50 shortly. Uh, so this is what we see in the FX markets as a result. The loonie maintaining its gain after the Bank of Canada policy decision. Now, coming up on this program, the Fed has another tool to fight inflation. It's shrinking its $8.9 trillion balance sheet. That starts today. Where are the biggest risks from quantitative tightening? We're going to ask Lisa Shalit from Morgan Stanley Wealth Management, where she's Chief Investment Officer. That conversation coming up next. This is Bloomberg. labor market is the tightest basically it's ever been and you can see that by the ratio of unfilled jobs relative to the number of people that are unemployed the fed needs to loosen that up or wage pressures will accumulate and that will keep inflation above the fed's two percent inflation objective that was bill dudley bloomberg opinion columnist and former new york fed president of course speaking earlier on bloomberg tv let's get to our question of the day where is the biggest risk from qt from quantitative signing from the runoff of these balance sheets that we see starting today at the fed but actually has been taking place from other global central banks already lisa shallot joins us morgan stanley wealth management chief investment officer lisa really nice to have you with us uh, let's start on this question then about qt because it starts today at the fed and we're all curious to know what the biggest risk from QT is going to be for markets. Yeah, look, I, I think what people need to remember is, you know, the Fed is using two tools. One is the Fed funds rate, which is the cost of capital. Uh, and, you know, running off the balance sheet is the amount of capital. Uh, and I think, you know, as we've been trying to caution clients about, uh, it's where that quantity of capital and quantity of liquidity has been most beneficial, that its withdrawal is going to continue to be felt. And that is in the, the most speculative parts of the market, the most richly valued parts of the market. Uh, so while I think we've seen a bounce, 
uh, back over the last, um, you know, five or seven trading days uh, in some of those sectors, whether whether it's unprofitable tech, if you will, whether it's, you know, some strengthening in, in some of this, the smaller cap sectors or sectors, uh, you know, levered to, um, uh, you know, some of the more speculative parts of the market. Uh, that's, I think, where we're going to see this withdrawal of liquidity uh, really start to bite. So, Lisa, I, I guess I wonder how much of that is already in the market. And, I, and I'm just looking at the front end of the curve now, whether you're looking here or in Canada, for example. The Bank of Canada hikes 50 bips. They say we can do more if we need to. We kind of knew that was going to happen. But the market reacts quite strongly anyway. What's appropriately priced? So, look, I think we need to remember, you know, from our perspective, what's happening on the front end of the curve is all about, you know, what uh, people think is going to happen to rates. Uh, what happens on the back end of the curve is very much about what people think is going to happen to the balance sheet. Uh, and so I think, you know, we saw, you know, a pullback in the 10-year uh, and the 30-year over the last, um, you know, kind of three or four weeks. Uh, and our sense is we may give some of that uh, rally in, in long-duration treasuries back as people begin to further internalize uh, what this withdrawal of, uh, of liquidity looks like uh, for that longer-duration bid. Mm, so that's the longer-term story, and, and, and as you say, that might be driven by, by the balance sheet. Let me ask you what you expect to hear next from the Federal Reserve. I mean, we just went through some data on the U.S. economy, the data suggesting, according to our colleagues on the Markets Live blog, that the economy can handle a hawkish Fed. For how much longer do we hear a hawkish Fed, Lisa? Do you have any kind of pivot point in mind? I think the Fed's going to remain extraordinarily hawkish through September. Uh, but I do think that September is going to be a, a watershed, and it's going to be a watershed in terms of the deceleration of Fed hawkishness, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's think about it. We're going to, you know, live through uh, what's likely to be uh, 50 basis points in June, 50 basis points uh, in July, potentially, uh, you know, 50 in August as we get closer and closer to, you know, Fed funds futures forecast for this for the full year. And at the same time, that quantitative tightening is ramping up uh, and we don't get to steady state uh, on those things until September. So I think by the time we get to September, uh, we should have some more constructive inflation data the, that will give the Fed some cover. Uh, we'll also be approaching uh, the uh, midterm election season mm -hmm. when the Fed typically, uh, uh, in their spirit of independence, wants to try to quiet down uh, and not get into the fray of campaign season. So I, I, we're targeting September for a, a, a shift in the tone from the Fed, but it's going to be a rocky summer uh, from where we, we sit, uh, and the Fed's going to keep their foot on the accelerator. So, Lisa, I, this is such a simplistic question, but like, what do you buy and what do you sell on that? In, in, in that, if you're if we're in for a higher volatility regime until things calm down, what do you what, what do you do with that? We haven't been in that kind of regime in in a very very long time. Yeah. So our advice to clients has been uh, to be a uh, very active uh, asset allocator and be a very active uh, security selector. 
Uh, we're advising, you know, maximum levels of diversification by region, by sector, by exposure to style and quality factors, by, by capitalization. Uh, and we're really just hollowing out uh, the parts of, the, uh, of our uh, portfolio exposure that's very sensitive to uh, rates. Uh, and so that has left us, surprisingly, uh, very focused on, uh, on a, a suite of cyclical-oriented uh, sectors like energy, like industrials, like financials, uh, like some consumer services, and balancing that with some more defensive uh, um, exposures, most particularly mm. healthcare. Okay, so that combination of the cyclical and the defensives. On the subject of that cyclical, you mentioned commodities, you mentioned oil. Is that still a good place to hide, Lisa? Do you think we've seen peak oil? I mean, clearly the geopolitics very difficult to call here, but you have the geopolitics pushing the supply side, but then you have the demand side from China. Where do you think this heads? I, I think we go higher before, uh, you know, we get to a resolution around equilibrium. Uh, clearly, um, you know, we've gone through this period where much of uh, the pressure has, quite frankly, come from the constrained supply side and what's going on emanating from the Russia-Ukraine war. But what we have to appreciate exactly to your point uh, is that China and, quite frankly, a, a swath of emerging markets have been, uh, if not slowing, close to uh, a recession. And so as those economies come back, which again, we have very high degree of confidence they will uh, towards the third and fourth quarter of this year, in large part because we do think uh, that China is going to aggressively stimulate into uh, the next Communist uh, mm -hmm. Congress in September when Xi uh, goes for a historic uh, next term. Uh, and so, you know, if we see a spike in demand, um, you know, in the back half of the year, I don't think that the supply situation globally is going to be fixed by then. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking at at least another six, 12 months, um, in our humble opinion, uh, of, of tightness in oil markets here. And so that, that trade's got more, more ways to run. Hey, Lisa, it was really good to catch up with you. Thank you so much, Lisa Shallot, Morgan Stanley Wealth Management Chief Investment Officer. Uh, coming up, I was wrong. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen admitting she made a major misjudgment when it came to inflation. More from Washington next. Um, and just to point out here, we're seeing a little bit of a risk-off mood underway. The S&P is now down by about four-tenths of one percent. Dollar moving higher, yields moving higher. That really uh, took effect when the Bank of Canada came out with that 50 basis point uh, rate hike and warned of further more to come and that good data from the U.S. We're seeing a little bit of risk repricing here uh, as we head into the session. Also want to point out that Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan, is speaking at the Autonomous Strategic Decisions Conference right now. Some really interesting headlines coming out saying um, on the economy, it's a hurricane. I thought it was a storm before, but now it's a hurricane and that you better <laughs> brace yourself. I don't quite know what that means, but he is definitely warning of tightening conditions and private borrowers and saying that you should brace yourself on the U.S. economy. We'll continue to update you on some of those headlines as they cross. This is Bloomberg. Chart. If I have to hold twice as much capital as somebody else, then somebody else should own the loan. Now, I may not be able to do it overnight. You're damn straight I'm going to do it over time.
I think I was wrong then about um, the path that inflation um, would take. As I mentioned, there have been unanticipated and large shocks to the economy that have boosted uh, energy and food prices. It is not something that you hear every day from a Treasury Secretary. For more on Janet Yellen's surprising remarks, want to go to Bloomberg's Anne-Marie Hardern joining us in Washington. Anne-Marie, this is all sort of the White House's push to start controlling the economic narrative, right? I feel like there was a flood of officials over the last 24 hours trying to place the blame and trying to do mea culpas. Yeah, there is definitely going to be a concerted effort for the month of June. There seems to be a lot of angst within the administration, according to this NBC report, that uh, the president hasn't exactly liked how the communications have gone regarding a lot of these issues. And when you look at inflation and some of the recent polls, one uh, earlier this month was that more than 9 in 10 Americans think at a minimum inflation is a huge concern and they don't like the way the administration is handling it. So you're going to see a lot of communication from this administration. Yesterday we heard from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, a mea culpa, saying maybe we got this wrong or we did get it wrong in terms of the path forward for what we thought inflation or how high inflation would get. But there is an issue in the sense that the administration says that they are doing everything they can. But then when you ask them questions like, well, where are you on the China tariffs, for instance, something that has been, um, you know, dealt with potentially as a means to shave off some level of inflation, they don't have answers yet. So this is going to be a month where I think there's going to be a lot of questions of the administration if they're serious about doing anything to bring down inflation. What exactly are those actions? Because right now, a lot of it is, is rhetoric. It was a photo op with mm. Jay Powell. We've had two op-eds, and it's been a slew of uh, officials on television networks, as you pointed out, Alex. Anne-Marie, good morning to you. So uh, what are we hearing from uh, President Biden then? Or give us the context, I suppose, because in, in international financial markets, we like to talk all the time about what the Fed is doing and the Fed's role in fighting inflation and the independence of the Fed. But I imagine that's not necessarily how Main Street sees it in the U.S., or at least they need re maybe reminding by politicians that there are others responsible for fighting inflation too. That's a great point, Anna. And actually, Guy and Alex asked this to me yesterday. How many people in America know who Jay Powell is? And I didn't know. But I looked back at a poll in 2014 when Treasury current Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was the Fed chair. She was named Forbes' most powerful women, and yet only 24% of Americans, when asked who she was, knew who she was. 24%. So this moment with the president standing next to Fed Chair Jay Powell, who just got his second um, re, uh, second uh, confirmation from the Senate to be the helm of the Fed, is really the president saying, passing the buck a little bit, this is the Fed's responsibility. They are responsible for the unemployment rate, and they are also responsible for consumer prices. This is something that, as you say, a lot of everyday individuals need to be reminded of because when you see gasoline, another record today, $4.67 going up, when you see your groceries going up, you, you blame the individual sitting in the Oval Office. You don't necessarily mm. think of the Fed chair.
Yeah. So the emphasis may be from Powell on the independence, but with that independence comes responsibility presenting Jerome Powell. Amory, thank you very much. Bloomberg's Amory Hordern outside the White House, of course, for us. Coming up on this program, we're talking markets and bargains in a time of inflation. Our exclusive interview with the co-chairman of Oak Tree Capital, Howard Marks. He sat down with our colleagues at Bloomberg TV to talk about these markets. More detail from Howard Marks coming up shortly. This is Bloomberg. into the U.S. trading session, we got a pretty strong ISM manufacturing number. Demand really holding up quite well. Now, that actually spurred a little bit of a risk-off move. You have yields on the front end surging higher. Dollar on the highs of the session. Stocks uh, dropping to session lows. Let's dig beneath that a little bit now with Bloomberg's Abigail Doolittle. Abigail? Well, Alex, that's a great setup because it's really interesting to see this because, of course, on the open, we had stocks higher, but right now that S&P 500 down about six-tenths of one percent, the Nasdaq down three-tenths of one percent, having everything to do with that ISM number coming in stronger than expected. Uh, perhaps it means that the Fed's fully on course. They, of course, floated the idea of having flexibility later this year. But if the economy is OK and does not need help, it could maybe uh, create the path to continue raising if needed. In any case, we have some more volatility for stocks. Crude is up 1.6%. This, of course, on the possibility the report that OPEC Plus may consider dropping the plus and exempt Russia from its targets. There's also super tight inventories. So we have crude oil at 116. And to Alex's point, take a look at that two-year yield backing up 10 to 11 basis points. So right now, an interesting day here with uh, stocks down, bonds down, and crude oil higher. Now, what is also lower is uh, the housing market in terms of uh, the number of um, uh, the mortgage rate here for the uh, the applications, excuse me, for mortgages, not surprisingly, in the bottom panel here, uh, down for a third week in a row. This as the 30-year average rate for mortgages. It's been trending off of the high, but nonetheless, it's ticked back up just a little bit. So that, of course, created uh, a little bit of an issue for the home builder sector. As for sectors on the day, the energy sector up 1.2% in line with oil trading higher. We also have software and services higher up about six tenths of 1%. This after CRM, Salesforce.com put up a great outlook saying that business demand uh, for enterprise software is still very, very strong. And that stock itself up more than 10%, helping out that sector. Communication sector uh, services up a little bit at this point. And then we see airlines. This is an interesting turnaround because earlier, uh, airlines had been sharply higher, now down 3.5%, maybe having something to do with the oil. But we do, of course, know, Anna, uh, that uh, Delta Airlines joined both United Airlines and Southwest in terms of reiterating and raising the revenue guide because demand remains strong. But the airline sector uh, not following along right now. We'll be digging into that. 
Yeah, aviation under pressure today here in Europe as well. A, a tough week, one where European aviation businesses were hoping to make quite a bit of money with lots of vacations taking place certainly here in the UK. But uh, it's proving difficult to get up to speed, to get up to capacity for those aviation businesses. Thanks to Bloomberg's Abigail Doolittle with a look at the markets there. Now, Howard Marks thinks it's a good time to be a value investor. Marks is the co-founder of Oak Tree Capital Management, the largest investor in distressed securities worldwide. He spoke with Bloomberg in an exclusive interview. Attitudes are more balanced today, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, when, when there's euphoria, when there's optimism, when there's greed, when there's risk tolerance and so forth, uh, that's a very difficult climate for the value investor uh, to find uh, bargains. Uh, so uh, we're happier today than we were six months ago. I don't know if we're going to be happier six months from now. That is to say that the bargains will be more pronounced. But at least, the, as they say, the bloom is off the rose. At a time of such incredible uncertainty, how do you position seeing value now but also preparing for seeing more value in six months? You know, uh, one of the six tenets of Oak Tree's investment philosophy, which we established when we started in April of 95, and I've never changed the word, and I believe in thoroughly, is that uh, we're not market timers. And, and, and that means mostly two things. We never sell to raise cash to, pre to, to prepare for a decline. Uh, and we never say it's cheap today, but it'll be cheaper in six months, so we'll wait. If it's cheap today, we buy it. If it's cheaper in six months more, we buy more. Uh, and I think that that works much better than an assertion that we know where the market will be in six months. This is really important at a time when so many pensions and institutional investors have been shooting for that 75 to 8% bogey. We talked about that extensively in the past five to six years. This idea that that seemed completely unachievable in an era of quantitative easing. Suddenly, high-yield bonds have an average yield of more than 7%. Is this the best period that you have seen for pensions to actually hit their bogeys for more than a decade? Well, I think that's right. In, 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 uh, well, of course, many have hit their bogeys. Uh, it just didn't look in advance like they would, but the stock market and many other things have surprised on the upside for the last 10 years. Um, but now, uh, as you point out, one of our big activities is high-yield bonds. And uh, a year ago, they were yielding in the threes of percent. Uh, one deal was even done in the twos. That's not a very high yield for high yield. Today, as you say, they yield in the sevens. So a pension fund that needs seven or seven and a half can make use of high yield bonds. And everything, you know, see, when everybody gets concerned when prices decline. But if you flip that over, the flip side of price deterioration is increases in prospective returns. So now the prospective returns are on many asset classes are higher than they were just a little while ago. And uh, again, a much better climate for the bargain hunter. Some people would counter this by saying inflation takes a lot of the value out of those returns, that basically on a real basis you're still not getting very much. How do you counter that as a long-term investor by saying, you know what, at this point it's worth it to get higher returns even if on a real basis it's not necessarily that much more? Well, you're right in that uh, we're not talking about an increase in real returs. We're increase, uh, talking about an increase in nominal returns. Most, most pension funds 
and other uh, uh, organizations reckon their need for return in nominal terms. Uh, but, um, you know, I mean, th that is a challenge. Uh, and uh, nobody knows what inflation is going to do. Uh, I think I heard out of one ear your previous uh, guest say that, uh, you know, some of the inflation factors will uh, probably subside in the next few months, which means, uh, all things being equal, uh, an increase in real returns. That was Howard Marks, Oak Tree Capital co-chairman, earlier today on Bloomberg Television. All right, coming up, the political climate in Latin America and how it is affecting investments. We're going to speak with private equity investor Oscar DiCatelli, DXA Invest CEO, coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Markets. I'm Ritika Gupta. You're looking at a live shot of the principal room. Coming up, Quincy Crosby, the Prudential Financial Chief Market Strategist on Bloomberg TV, 3.30 p.m. New York time. This is Bloomberg. Keeping you up to date with news from around the world, here's the first word. I'm Ritika Gupta. Ukraine will get advanced rocket systems and other weapons from the U.S. President Biden made the announcement in an article published in the New York Times. The rockets will allow Ukraine to hit targets up to 50 miles away. The U.S. says Ukraine has promised not to attack targets inside Russia. In New York State, Governor Kathy Hochul and legislative leaders pledged to raise the legal age to purchase an AR-15 assault rifle to 21 years old from 18. They also say they'll pass a package of measures to tighten gun laws this week. Officials cited the recent mass shootings in Uvalde, Texas and Buffalo. In Colombia, the peso rallied after construction mogul Rodolfo Hernandez defied the polls to secure a place in the election runoff later this month. That reduces the chance that leftist Senator Gustavo Petro will be the next president. Hernandez is something of an unknown, but he is seen as a safer bet for business interests. Global News, 24 hours a day on air and on Bloomberg Quick Take, powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. I'm Ritika Gupta. This is Bloomberg. All right, thanks so much, Ritika. Let's stay in Latin America for a moment. So we have that election uncertainty in Colombia. Uh, Brazil has a presidential election in October where former President De Silva, the leftist, is really looking to stage quite a comeback. And on the economic front, Latin American economies are dealing with high inflation and high U.S. dollar and questions about the strength of the consumer, just like everywhere else. So joining us now to discuss investments in Latin America is Oscar Dicotelli, a DXA Invest CEO and founder, joining me here on set. Oscar, it's a pleasure. Nice yeah, to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you again, Alex, in person. It's been a long time since I've been here in New York. It so. has been quite a long yeah. time. I got your name right, and that feels like a huge <laughs> his name is one I couldn't say forever. Um, so the climate from where you sit, you invest in private equity, you, yeah. um, mid, small uh, companies, mostly geared towards the consumer. Um, where are you? right now? Well, Alex, I think it's what's going on is really kind of an example that it's not about macro, right? So we're seeing a lot of bad information on the macro side, as you were mentioning, inflation, the slow growth, and even on the election side, there's a lot of discussions to happen there. But when you look in terms of the underlying companies, venture-related, tech-enabled companies, innovation-related, 
it's, it's, a, it's a new market. It's a different setup. We just saw, for instance, in Colombia, we just saw last month a new unicorn coming out of Colombia mm -hmm. with international big funds investing and backing that company, just to give an example. But do you need, so we're talking like those technology exposed to the consumer and then do you need a strong consumer? Do you need the macro to hold up for that to continue to happen? Not necessarily. I'll give an example. So when you think about Latin America from a macro standpoint, it would say there's no security, there's political instability, there's poverty. And when you look from a couple of different companies, they're resolving those problems. So I always say about Uber, right, because there's no security there, the three best cities for Uber are in Latin America. Mexico City, Sao Paulo, and Rio, the biggest number in terms of number of rides. And you say there's political instability and there are companies that are doing, for instance, uh, cameras, surveillance cameras that they're using to pile up that information to resolve something that the government's not doing. So I think that the fact that you have big problems are now, now becoming more and more a big market and landscape for you to be able to tap into that mm. with technology. Oscar, good to see you. So, Hi, so security becomes a business opportunity there where governments are absent, then private business can, can, can make some money. Let me ask you about, though, some of the macro themes and how they do impact the kind of private equity deals that, that you're doing. Because, I mean, the Fed, the Fed, with its tighter policy, private equity has been a big winner, of course, from low interest rates, a lot of money allocated in that direction. Is it harder? Is, is money harder to come by now? Look, I think, of course, money is a little bit harder than what we saw in the past. We're still seeing uh, massive drives of growth in terms of the volumes of the coming into the region. So I'll give an example. If you take a percentage of uh, tech-enabled companies versus GDP, Brazil and LATAM is about 2%, okay? India is at 14%, China 40%, and, and the U.S. 70%. So there's still a long way to go there. So you're coming from such a low base that it's not impacting that much. However, we are seeing, especially in the deals that we're doing, the, uh, uh, when you start putting interest rates into that deal. So you do things like a debt that has an interest and it converts on the next round. And you're starting to see things, well, especially in Brazil, that now interest rates are at 12 and three quarters, you have to factor that in, into your deals. So I think that uh, funds and investors there can be kind of a little bit more flexible and definitely the companies are open to that. You're able to factor in the interest into those negotiations. Um, so tell me about maybe the most recent deal that you did and then maybe one area that you're most excited about. So uh, we, we do have a, a strong view in terms of consumer uh, kind of uh, changes, right? We've just done a deal in a beauty tech it's a company that started off basically, it's called Beauty for All. Basically, they started giving kind of small kits that people that would kind of pay on a monthly subscription side, right, to have the newest uh, uh, lipstick. And then that's, that drove into an economy for second income. So now these creators and influencers, they buy these subscriptions, but they, bought, they set up their uh, online shops and then use the internet to drive that. So when you got into a situation where income is not very well and everything, you started to have bigger subscribers because people were looking to use that as a way for a second income. And now they have about 100,000 subscribers on a monthly standpoint and a million people that really kind of run that network. So I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of different things that are happening in the landscape. And it's not just Brazil, it's Colombia, it's Mexico, all across Latin America that we're seeing these kind of opportunities. 
Uh, okay, some subscription models then of interest to you, Oscar. Uh, let me ask you about clean tech. We're going to talk later this hour about electric vehicles and expectations for, for, for their future development. But around clean tech, are you finding interesting ideas on that theme, Oscar? For sure, for sure, Anna. Uh, well, first of all, we're seeing a huge uh, impact of investments towards solar, towards uh, uh, wind energy also, especially in Brazil, there's some new legislations around it. We're looking a lot at clean tech, for instance, you have companies that use uh, 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 technology for you to reduce the, the expenditures around, for instance, private planes. This is a deal that we're currently looking at, for instance, where you have like a NetJets here, just to give an example. Similar situations that are using there also. These are definitely drivers of clean tech movement. Brazil already has, specifically Brazil, already has one of the cleanest matrix of energy in the world. And I think that we're seeing now these big investments towards solar and wind, they're de definitely going to drive like the big change. Just give one example. In the northeast of Brazil, the factor, uh, the load factor for wind is about 65% efficiency. You look in the Nordics, it's 40% uh, efficiency. Mm -hmm. And now they just uh, issued a law where they're going to allow for you to have offshore wind uh, turbines. So uh, this is something that's still at the verge, at the beginning. So when you see market volatility like that, it doesn't impact that much because it's coming from such a low base of low, low amount of capitals being invested in there. So let's just go macro for just a moment. Yeah, of course. Um, you mentioned uh, the high yield and sort of what, what that winds up doing when you're factoring in your investment and issuing debt. What about inflation? Like, how do you look at inflation and then eating into your returns? Like, do you just change your profile? Well, I think you do need to factor in specific products that you're investing in that will use inflation as an aspect. So if it's uh, gasoline prices that's going to generate an impact into that company, you should be shying away. We are doing that, of course. But I do think that uh, macro will impact, from a political standpoint, will impact the landscape of innovation being driven. So we've seen a lot of new legislations to allow fintech to, to operate freely. We're looking at things around health tech to, to, to be freely. If we do have the impact of inflation affecting the, the political landscape and then you see a, 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 a backdrop of the mentality towards a pro-business region, then that's, I think, it's something that becomes a bit more risky. Oscar, let me ask you that about pro-business and how pro-business some of these uh, geographies are. We started our conversation talking about Colombia, where somebody who is relatively pro-business and pro-risk assets uh, is now going to be in the runoffs. Uh, and, and maybe that was a surprise to some people. Are there geographies, countries, where you feel you have a more pro-business backdrop? Or are you saying the opportunities don't really correlate with that? Well, I think it's quite interesting. What happened in Colombia, for instance, is, is a discussion with Hernandez coming uh, uh, from, uh, uh, now into the, second, uh, into the second round. is really showing that the population, they want to change. They want to see, don't want to see the old, old politicians in power, right? We saw that in 2018 in Brazil when Bolsonaro came into power. Although he was a longtime politician, was, wasn't somebody that was really kind of on, on people's mind, right? So I think what's, what we're seeing in Colombia also 
is uh, the, the, especially the younger population that was really kind of connected to Hernandez with TikTok, like they call the TikTok king, right? Huh. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we saw that this is the same population that wants more innovation, wants more products. So I think that Colombia has a great, uh, a great setup for the future. Uh, Brazil has it, Mexico has it also. Even in some stances, we're seeing a lot of interesting uh, uh, opportunities that come out of even Argentina. That's in such a difficult moment, but it's through innovation and technology that we're starting to see companies that are kind of resolving those issues for the general public. Oscar, it's really good to catch up with you. Yeah, really appreciate great. seeing you in person. Oscar Dicatelli, DXA Invest CEO and founder. Thank you so very much. All right, coming up, electric vehicle sales are expected to soar in the next few years. We got a new report from Bloomberg that says that's not enough to get to carbon neutrality. More details on that next. This is Bloomberg. It's time for the Bloomberg Business Flash, a look at some of the biggest business stories in the news right now. I'm Ritika Gupta. Shares of Salesforce are rising today. The company raised its annual profit forecast, a signal that demand for business software is holding up despite a broader downturn for those major tech firms. Salesforce co-CEO Mark Benioff says that so far the demand environment remains strong. The richest person in the world doesn't appear to think much of working from home. Elon Musk apparently sent an email to the executive staff at Tesla with the subject line, remote work is no longer acceptable. He wrote that anyone who wishes to do remote work must be in the office for a minimum of 40 hours per week or leave Tesla. And that is your latest business flash. Anna? Riska, thank you very much. Riska with the business flash. Now, staying with electric vehicles, she was just talking about Tesla there. A new report predicts that EV sales are set to more than triple by 2025. But it says governments and car makers need to lean even harder into eliminating emissions. That report comes from Bloomberg NEF, BNEF. Uh, new Energy Finance. With us now is Ryan Fisher, Bloomberg NEF analyst for Electrified Transport. The perfect person to speak to you then about this report. Ryan, really good to speak to you. So what is the, what's the big takeaway coming through from this report then? Yes, yeah, so as we hear in the news, we're selling more and more EVs. I mean, last year, a lot of the top markets, China, Germany, getting 15, 25% of car sales being EV. So it certainly is a success story. But when you even look at that and you project out to the future, we're still in a position where we're not meeting net zero by 2050. It's really difficult to get rid of those internal combustion engine vehicles from the fleet. So we end up with somewhere around a third of the fleet still being um, internal combustion engine. And that's even worse when you think about heavy duty um, vehicles. So we end up with something like a third of the fleet um, being zero emission by 2050 in that case. But that still means you've got many of those on the road yeah. and they're obviously high emitters. And so does that mean that people aren't demanding EVs or they're just not available, not as easy to access, they're not as available to buy and maybe they're, you know, the, the combustion engine ones are cheaper still? Yeah, so I think price has something to do with it, but I don't think it's all the way there. So um, we've obviously seen EVs get problems in the supply crunch, semiconductor crisis, not being able to produce them. Uh, but one thing that I think is understated at the moment is whilst the price, when you, you look at it, first of all, looks expensive, you've then got subsidies, can be $7,000, say, in Germany. Um, but then you're starting to see TCO and, and fuel costs actually be much lower. 
So whilst electricity prices have gone up, gas prices have gone up quicker. So an EV can actually be somewhere around $1,500 cheaper okay. per year. Alex. Um, hey, Ryan, um, first of all, I should point out that your work is referenced among all Wall Street analysts when it comes to EVs, whether it's the equities or whether it's the commodities. So kudos to the work. Um, quickly, do you feel, when is the adoption rate going to happen? Like, when, when is it going to flip uh, in terms of an EV becoming cheaper than an internal combustion engine? Have you revised that? Um, so what we started to see was in the, kind of looking around 23, 24, depending on the region, depending on exactly the size of the vehicle. And obviously battery prices have slightly um, in, increased. We see that in the news every day, um, which, which means that it might be a little bit more challenging. It might push it further back. But as I just kind of um, said a second ago, what we're also seeing is people start to look and go, actually, I can use cheap electricity in the evening and therefore... Um, my fuel costs are much less than yeah. paying and going to the gas station. Um, so two slightly different conversations there. Okay, Ryan, thanks very much. Thanks for the analysis. Ryan Fisher of uh, Bloomberg NEF joining us with the latest on the rise of electric vehicles. This is Bloomberg. are the news that broke in the last hour and that is that Manchester United have confirmed that Paul Pogba is leaving the club on a free transfer for a second time this summer. Pogba's last appearance proved to be when he was forced off injured in Manchester United's 4-0 defeat to Liverpool at Anfield in April. It ends Pogba's six-year stay at Old Trafford after he rejoined from Juventus back in 2016. Despite letting him leave for nothing in 2012, they made the decision to then re-sign him for a club record £93.25 million from Juventus. At the time, it was also a British transfer record, but now the club will recoup nothing from his departure. This is one of the most incredible sort of transfer stories ever in my mind. I mean, you get to let a player go for free, sign him back for nearly 100 million, then go for free again. A few years later, Dharma Sheth, as you can see, is with us uh, on set, our transfer man, top reporter on, on all this. Um, look, the writing's been on the wall for some time, but how's this all come about and what on earth happens now? We've got to say, Pete, that this has come as no surprise. For the past couple of months, we have been reporting that it's looking increasingly likely Paul Pogba won't be signing a new contract at Manchester United. He will see out the remainder of his contract and become a free agent and leave for free at the end of the season. It is, as you say, the second time 
that this has happened. Manchester United have lost Paul Pogba on a free transfer, not once, but twice. And I think this was coming to a head last summer. It was my information that Manchester United made a contract offer to Paul Pogba last summer. And I think Pogba and his representatives viewed that as sort of the first round of negotiations. But there's been no further offer forthcoming from Manchester United since then. And then last season, the information I was getting was that Pogba was feeling that he was the almost the scapegoat for all of Manchester United's problems. And in what proved to be his last home game for Manchester United at Old Trafford, it was that 3-2 victory against Norwich City when Cristiano Ronaldo scored that hat-trick, he was substituted and, and Paul Pogba was actually booed by a section of the Manchester United fans there. And, and we didn't see the pictures of him after, but when he was going down the tunnel, he was actually cupping his ears to those fans. So, as you ask, what is next? Well, the clubs that are in for Paul Pogba have remained the same as of the past few months. Juventus and PSG have both made offers for Paul Pogba to sign him on a free transfer. And they remain in dialogue with his representatives, as do Real Madrid. Now, all three of those clubs represent a different pull, you'd have to say, for Paul Pogba. Paris Saint-Germain. He's obviously a Frenchman mm -hmm. to go back to France. Juventus to go back to Juventus where he had four successful seasons at the Italian club or to go to Real Madrid. The, the mythology of Real Madrid to play for that club, to play in that all-white kit, it's almost like a new challenge, a new country, a new league. So there are very different pulls for all of those clubs for Paul Pogba to maybe go to one of those on a free transfer and he'll be able to command uh, a good salary for those three clubs as well. So some of the information I was getting before is that this wouldn't be a footballing, uh, this wouldn't be a financial decision rather for Paul Pogba because it's likely that whatever he was to get paid by any of these three clubs would have probably been matched by Manchester United. So yeah. I think it's coming down to where he sees his footballing future because at 29 years of age, this is likely to be the last remaining peak years of his career and the last big contract that he's going to sign. So he's going to want to get it right. Mm -hmm. He was such a great player at uh, Juventus. They say never go back, don't they? But he's done that already before with mm -hmm. Manchester United. So will he go back there? Or I say three massive clubs to choose from. But Manchester United fans won't wor be worried about where he ends up. But they just want to know who's going to come in and fill the gap that Paul Pogba sometimes filled for them, but often you know didn't. I, who's who's the name in the frame? Look, in the past few minutes, it's been confirmed to me that. Midfield, and it's an obvious thing to say, is a priority position for Manchester United in this summer's transfer window. Now, I've also been told that initial talks have taken place with Barcelona over the possibility of signing their midfielder, the Dutch international Frankie de Jong. I've also been told that there will be significant obstacles for Manchester United to be able to get a signing like this over the line not least the transfer fee, not least the personal terms and not least 
the will of the player as well. Some of the noises that we're hearing at the moment is that he would like to stay at Barcelona. Would that um, decision be taken out of his hands given the financial predicament that Barcelona find themselves in at the moment. Mm. It should also be said, though, Frankie de Jong is one of a number of midfielders that Manchester United are looking at for this summer's transfer window. But look, Eric Ten Hag rates Frankie de Jong. Frankie de Jong played under Eric Ten Hag when they had that incredible run to the Champions League semi-finals in a midfield that also included... Donny van der Beek as well and Eric Ten Hag in his introductory news conference as Manchester United's new manager is saying that he's looking forward to working once again with Donny van der Beek. You've got to say it's going to be a summer of huge change uh, at Manchester United, not least the manager has changed but also you've got a number of players are likely not to be there. We already know now Paul Pogba won't be there. Jesse Lingard, unlikely to be there. Edinson Cavani will be leaving. Juan Mata, potentially. Nemanja Matic has already announced that he'll be leaving. A lot of players leaving. There will be a few arrivals as well. Manchester United will want to get those arrivals right this time. <laughs>
Now, BCIs conjure up images of science fiction like The Matrix, with a cable jacked up into your brain through a hole in your skull. But I'm here to show you that the future can be much more elegant than that. So we got this group chat going, which I thought was a great idea until they started roasting me about the TED talk, <laughs> which they found hilarious. Thanks for the vote of confidence, guys. Bloody Australians! Now you can see it's still quite slow for them to type this way, but this is like dial-up speeds at the beginning of the internet. This is a new Moore's law. We're just getting started. <laughs> That's Philip. This has been the dream of patients and caregivers, doctors and scientists for decades, and for good reason. You may know someone who's lost the ability to use their hands, maybe from a stroke or a spinal cord injury or multiple sclerosis, paralysis. It comes in all shapes and sizes, from minor inconvenience to life-threatening. During my neurology residency, I. Cared for a man in his 40s. He had a stroke and developed locked-in syndrome. Many couldn't move his body except for his eyes, left or right. His brain still worked like yours. He could see and hear and think and feel just like normal, but he couldn't move or speak ever again. And in What were horrific circumstances? We supported his wish to be taken off life support, and so I've been wondering ever since: was there not anything else that could have been done? Connection is a fundamental human need. So many of our patients have lost the ability to speak, let alone type, for years, and they so desperately want to reconnect with their family. With their loved ones, you know what the main request we get is text messaging, and then email, control over their smartphone, and shock horror, social media. We've been speaking so much lately about the flaws of these technologies, but for people with paralysis, this is a return to life. The BCIs make all of this possible. Now, part of the problem has been that BCIs typically require invasive surgery. This is the Utah array. This is designed similarly to all other BCIs currently under development, which require drilling needles directly into the brain. Now, this has been the basis of critical, fundamental research over the last 20 years, and the early proof that this technology really can perform. But for patients, it means open brain surgery, which involves cutting through the skull with a saw. And there are only about 150 functional neurosurgeons in the U.S. that can perform this procedure. Apart from the fact that the recovery is tricky, the brain doesn't really like having needles put into it. It develops this foreign body tissue rejection immune reaction over time. So I've been wondering. Is there any other way into the brain? And there is a secret back door. The blood vessels 
are the natural highways into the brain. These are hollow tubes that connect every corner of the brain. The largest vein at the top there is right next to the motor cortex, the exact part of the brain that we want to connect to to restore control to the outside world. How cool is that? Now, we already know how to travel through the blood vessels. We've been doing it for 40 years, mostly going to the heart. If anyone here today has had a heart attack, there's a pretty good chance you've had a stent. A stent is a metal scaffold delivered through a catheter, which opens up like a flower into the blood vessel. Millions of stents are delivered each year, not in the OR, but in the cath lab or catheter laboratory. It's now common in the cath lab to navigate up into the brain through the blood vessels, and there are two and a half thousand physicians who can now navigate their way up into the brain. But what's really amazing about this is that for BCIs, we already know that devices can be left inside a blood vessel, cells grow over it, incorporate it into the wall like a tattoo under the skin, and we're protected from that immune reaction. This is part of the reason why our team became the first in the world to receive a green light from the FDA. To conduct clinical trials of a permanently implanted BCI. So what we had to do was figure out a way to put a sensor connected to the crosslinks of the stent that could record that brain activity. To do that, we had to do a complete overhaul of stent manufacturing. This is the end result. I think it's very beautiful. Then connect it to a cable, which brings the information out of the brain, and do it all in a way that it can be delivered in the cath lab. This way, we can make BCI accessible not to the thousands of people, but to the millions of people who need this technology. So, it wasn't easy. It took us 10 years, but I'm very excited to show you guys. We called this the Stentrode. <laughs> Graham Felsted, an incredible human being, suffering with ALS, became the first person in the world to receive and use one of these brain-computer interfaces. And he has very generously offered you, the world, the chance to see what it looks like inside his brain. Would you like to see? <laughs> Seeing this video for the first time was one of the most incredible moments of my life. I was standing in the cath lab. Dr. Peter Mitchell had just completed the surgery, and. You can see the device, the outline of the device sitting inside the blood vessel there. So this popped up on the screen, and it, it just felt like we were witnessing something new in the world. I had tingles down my spine. I've got them now, thinking about it again. I turned to my colleague Pete, and I said something 
poetic and profound, like, Pete, holy shit. <laughs> and then two hours later, something even more amazing happened. Graham woke up and he asked, Am I alive? And our nurse Christine broke out in tears of relief. It was, it was a phenomenal moment. Once it's in place, it's connected to this tiny antenna that sits under the skin in the chest. This collects the raw brain data and sends it out of the body wirelessly to then connect with external devices. It's always on and ready to go. Kind of like how your brain is meant to work. So, here's how it works our engineers work with our patients to decode specific movements. So, we tell the patient, press down your foot. So, they'll repeatedly press down their foot, and we can, you know, you won't see the foot moving because they're paralyzed, but we've been able to determine which brain signals are generally linked to. Press down your foot. The black dotted line is the moment of pressing down the foot, and you can see the brain signal is different before to after, which means we can turn that into a switch. Now, we repeat this for several different types of movements, say, open, close your hand, or pincer grip your finger. Now, that may not seem like much, but these become the building blocks. For every single interaction on a digital device that is needed for control. Converted to click, up, down, left, right, menu, back, etc. But what's really amazing is that to some degree, this process, our brain signals are universal. So, the brain signal for press down your foot for me is the same as it is for you. Now, this means that we're creating a dictionary of the brain across all humans. This is going to make BCI truly scalable. As Philip once said to me, it's kind of like learning how to ride a bike. It takes a bit of practice, but once you're rolling, it becomes natural. Now I just look on the screen where I want to click, and I'm texting, messaging the world via Twitter. But Graham, he said, as his ALS was progressing, that it gave him immense comfort to know that even if his body was failing, he was always going to be able to tell his wife that he loved her. In the future, I'm really excited about the breakthroughs BCI could deliver to other conditions like epilepsy, depression, and dementia. But beyond that, what is this going to mean for humanity?、And、what's really got me thinking is the future of communication. Take emotion. Have you ever considered how hard it is to express how you feel? You have to self reflect, package the emotion into words, and then use the muscles of your mouth to speak those words. But you really just want someone to know how you feel. For some people with certain conditions, that's impossible. So, what if rather than using your words, you could throw your emotion just for a few seconds and have them really feel how you feel?
At that moment, we would have realized that the necessary use of words to express our current state of being was always going to fall short. The full potential of the brain would then be unlocked. But for right now, BCI is about restoring the lives of millions of people with paralysis. After years of feeling trapped, this technology promises the return of autonomy and independence. But what I really mean is dignity. Thank you. Everybody, today is Thursday, June second, twenty twenty-two. We have a lot to get to today, so we're just going to jump right in. Uh, we're going to start with economic data. We're going to talk a little bit about oil because uh, oil is falling today um, on the heels of some potential announcements in July. We had a big interview from Jamie Dimon yesterday. Jim Bullard was talking. That's the Fed chairman, uh, Fed president of St. Louis. He was talking a little bit. Uh, we have. Facebook news that we're going to update you on that you may have heard of. And then Ford is planning a, quote, major economic announcement today. So we're going to finish off with that. So we're going to jump in on the economic data. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the data that we got yesterday at 10 a.m., but then we're going to really spend some time talking about jobs number that we got this morning and previewing tomorrow's big unemployment report that we're going to get at 8.30 while we're on the call. So ISM data, manufacturing ISM data. Uh, this is the monthly number that comes in that goes around to a bunch of manufacturing businesses and surveys then on, on how business is going. And that actually went up to 56.1 from 55.4. Now, within that, you had new orders increasing to 55.1 from 53.5. That's, that's good. It was expected to decline. However, prices dropped a little bit, but not, not a whole lot. There's 82.2 down from 84.6. We we're hoping to get a number closer to 81. And employment contracted. This is the big one, and we're going to be focusing on this a lot. Employment was down to 49.6 from 50.9. Uh, it was actually expected to go, excuse me, estimate was 50.9. Last time it was 52. So definitely trending in the wrong direction in terms of employment. Uh, on the manufacturing side, we also got the jobless uh, job openings yesterday. They remain elevated, but this is an April number. Uh, so they remain elevated 11.4 million. Uh, that's down from 11.9 million in March, but that was upwardly revised. And what we've been seeing with these job openings is that it continues to get upwardly revised. So if we see a similar pattern with these April numbers, I wouldn't be surprised to see about another Close, a number close to 12 million is the true underlying number for the month of April. So a lot of job openings right out, out there, um, but they're, they're not really getting filled. Today, we have the ADP employment number that came out, and we're starting to see a significant slowdown in hiring and even a contraction in some areas of the economy. Small businesses are ground zero for what we're seeing right now. Small business actually fell 91,000 jobs in the last month. Very small uh, businesses were down 78,000. Overall, we're up uh, 128,000. 
which significantly underperformed expectations of 300,000. We also had a downward revision for the prior month. It is a bad number. Uh, the commentary in the report says the job growth rate of hiring has tempered across all industries, while small business remains a source of concern as they struggle to keep up with larger firms that have been booming of late. The problem is those large firms are not even booming anymore. We're starting to see hiring freezes, even salesforce.com uh, that came out with a better than expected number yesterday. They're slowing hiring, which is one of the reasons their numbers were better than expected because their margins are better because they are slowing hiring. And I think this employment is ground zero and we're seeing that reflected in interest rates. We're seeing that reflected in a move for quality in bonds. Tom, talk a little bit about the economic data and how that's being reflected in the credit markets. Yeah, so really uh, over the last week or so, we've started to tick back up on treasury rates. Uh, but what we have not seen is a tick up in municipal bonds. I mean, we've seen munis are on fire. I mean, bonds sold off yesterday. Uh, you know, the, the bond market, quote unquote, treasury sold off, you know, 10 year moved all the way up to 290, five years above that at 292. And yet, you know, you look around different accounts and we're seeing as much as a, you know, 75 basis points, 1% move up in the municipal bonds that we're holding. So people are saying, you know, things have gotten bad, things are going to get worse. The employment situation is kind of falling apart. And so we're finally seeing people move into the, you know, what I would say are the most uh, high quality, cheapest areas of the bond market. You know, people are eschewing treasuries in favor of muni bonds. And the reason is, you know, there aren't as many muni bonds floating around as treasuries. They aren't being, you know, printed or created out of thin air. Uh, it's very difficult to create a municipal bond and to get one issued, particularly after the 2018 tax changes. And so, uh, you know, we're seeing people move into there, but the credit quality on them is also improving. I mean, just this morning we saw uh, the JEA, which is the Jacksonville, Florida Electric Authority, uh, get upgraded. We saw the Metro DC airports, which is both of uh, Dallas and uh, is it RFK? The JFK, but the, uh, the airports in, in DC get upgraded. Uh, they're lumped together in one municipal bond issue. Uh, so we're starting to see just, you know, this is an area that is sold off really, really hard. It's contracting. It's the smallest area of the bond market. Uh, credit quality is increasing like crazy. And then finally, you know, probably to my own relief more than anybody, uh, we're seeing a, a break in the bond market where munis are basically on fire. They're up every single day for the last week or so while bonds are actively selling off uh, in general or treasuries are actually selling off in general. And so that's uh, really positive news, but it is not good news in terms of where the economy is going. I think it's definitely a, the writing is on the wall indicator that people would much rather jump into these things, say, hey, I'm going to lock in for five years at three and a half, four percent tax free and see where we are uh, on the other side of this equity market. Yeah, people are, people are fleeing to quality. And, you know, it's, it's, it's tough out there. I think that sometimes we can be uh, so focused on what's right in front of us. But if you think about the economy around certain industries, think of the economy around doing your mortgage. Think of when you get a mortgage or you refinance or you buy a home, how many people with livelihoods yeah. depend on that. I mean, you got the mortgage originator, you have the lawyer, you have the agent, you have um, the appraiser, you have the inspector, you have all these things that feed in the economy around just buying a home is huge. 
And I mean, I've spoken with people in the last couple of weeks who said firms are going out of business now in the mortgage origination side because uh, refis have totally dried up and the purchase market is, is slow. So uh, that's, that's really tough for those types of businesses. And that's one of the reasons we're seeing some just really chaos in, in, on the small business side. So um, just be thinking about that. Jamie Diamond had an interview yesterday and he was talking to kind of on the credit side. He said that JP Morgan itself is really bracing for uh, a hurricane. Uh, that was the quote he used. He said last time, last week, he said there were storm clouds, big storm clouds. He says he's changing that. It's a hurricane. Right now, it's kind of sunny. Things are doing fine. Everyone thinks the Fed can handle it. That hurricane is right out there down the road coming our way. We don't know if it's a minor one or super storm Sandy. So brace yourself. He says that cycles are part of life. They're part of the economy. He says he's a capitalist and these things happen. Um, the thing is to be smart and like we've been talking about, be smart, be sensible and um, be disciplined. Don't try to be a hero. And I think that uh, that's what he's talking about. He did warn about levered loans, which is something that we've talked about internally. He doesn't know if it's systemic, but he says there's a lot of leverage lending out there, especially in private credit, private, private equity. Uh, he says that he wishes there were more public companies. Um, there's just a whole bunch of issues right now. Being a public company, you got regulation, you got litigation, you have all these things that are deterrents of actually being a public company. So that's a detriment. And uh, he talked a little bit about um, JP, JP Morgan's philosophy on things. He says that higher oil prices are coming. And overall, he painted a, it wasn't a dire view. I think the word hurricane was bandied about. And I think we've seen a lot of headlines on that today. And I, if anyone is interested, I can send you the interview. It's 55 minutes. It's a phenomenal interview. He speaks extremely candidly. Uh, there is some bad language. So just don't have your kids around when, when, when he's talking about that. But I think sometimes it's helpful to hear from probably the most connected banker uh, in the United States is actually dealing with real people. And um, it might help just provide a little bit of perspective. Um, but again, He's, he's not panicked, but he definitely warns people, be smart, be sensible, don't be a hero. Tom, thoughts on that? I mean, I think it's just good advice when you start to see the economy turn like this. I mean, it's almost like the, uh, is it the grasshopper and the ants, you know, scenario, like when, when things are hot, you know, if you're in the mortgage origination business, you need to be saving that money because we know that situations like this come around every 10, 15 years, the housing market slows refinances go to zero and these things go out of business. I mean, you know, it was happening when I was, you know, first coming out of school. I mean, mortgage origination just got crushed. I mean, everything was, you know, in the toilet. And then, you know, these people forget or they weren't in the industry. They think the sun always shines and it doesn't. Um, and I think we're going to see that a lot over the next couple of months, especially, you know, if you're a hotshot kid coming out of school, you got offered $100,000 to work remotely for some company uh, that is a non-essential business. You know, you've just been hanging out, kicking your feet up at the house and making tons of money. I think those are the first jobs to go. Uh, and I don't think a lot of that money was saved, uh, you know, unless you got in and got a house with a really low interest rate, you know, or if you just bought one thinking, man, I'm crushing it. You know, I'm 22 and a half and I know everything. I think the world's about to get uh, very difficult. I mean, it happened, you know, it feels very similar to when I came out of school in 08, 09, where, 
you know, I thought I was on top of the world. I had an internship at SunTrust and I was on the fast track and things got very, very difficult, very, very quickly uh, for a lot of people my age. Uh, so that's, that's just how I feel about it. I think that Jamie Diamond is right. I think that everybody needs to kind of bat down the hatches and, and think about what's essential because, you know, the Fed is out to destroy the, the jobs market. That's really their only out. Um, I think that the, you know, the meeting with Joe Biden the other day basically, you know, cemented that. I think that was really the impetus was, hey, we're going to put you guys in charge of crushing inflation. And when, you know, it really hits the fan and people start losing their jobs, you're going to be the fall guy. You know, that's the that's the deal here. Uh, and I think that we're headed that direction sooner rather than later. Jim Bullard was talking about that yesterday. He said that growth has already been beginning to slow and that is, quote, expected and welcome. He says that once inflation gets under control, we could get back to 2019 levels in terms of interest rates, which would mean fixed rate mortgage coming down to about 4%, 10 year coming back down below 2%, um, which would actually be an extraordinarily good environment for fixed income if you can buy some, buy some uh, fixed income now. Uh, point here being, uh, just finishing on Diamond's comments, again, I don't think it's 2008. I think that there's a huge middle ground between 2008 and a what they call garden variety recessions. Um, I don't want to be glib when I talk about garden variety recession because it's a recession. Uh, no one likes when the economy is in decline. But it doesn't mean everything's 2008 where there's yeah. systemic risk when there's banks coming out. Um, it doesn't mean unemployment's going to 13%, but it could mean it goes to 5 6%. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I would just couch that there's a there's a huge middle ground there and people the credit situation especially on the uh company side and on the public company side and on the consumer side is much better than it was to that totally different yeah than it was i mean i would say that it, it, it echoes it doesn't rhyme right it's a right. very similar environment if you if you're coming out of school it's going to be far more difficult to get a job that pays like people who had you know gotten jobs in the last five years i mean I'm sure I've talked about it on this show before, but uh, one of my really good friends, he was a year ahead of me. He went to Georgia Tech, got a job at Microsoft, moved out to Seattle and has never, never missed a paycheck as an adult. You know, I was literally a year behind him uh, and it took me years to get to a point where I was making a sustainable income. And it was all about, he graduated, you know, in 2008, I graduated in 2009, you know, and it was just that one, you know, he was one of the last guys in the door, everything went terribly microsoft didn't hire anybody after him for years you know and he just is the last guy in the door and some of that timing i think is going to be very detrimental you know through no fault of their own for a lot of kids coming out of school right now yeah i agree especially with rent prices going with the way they are i think it's going to be tough for them but uh, i wanted to kind of get your thoughts tom on this uh, jim bullard stuff um thinking that the policy rate could come back down at some point in 2023 2024 once inflation's under control now he's looking very far ahead because we're certainly nowhere close to getting inflation under control right now. Um, but it's interesting that we're already starting to see people talking about cutting interest rates uh, when we're in the midst of it. We're about to hike by another 50 basis points in two weeks. Yeah. And I, I just wonder, there's some sort of internal messaging that we're not receiving from the market at large. They seem to think or know something about inflation coming down more quickly than anyone else. Uh, if they were being more aggressive and they say, hey, we're going to do a triple rate hike, you know, next meeting and we're going to just go hard in the paint until something happens, then I would say, yeah, then we'll probably have to cut rates sometime soon, you know, because inflation will come down. I just don't see a scenario where 
that's really the case unless they get really aggressive, but they're already talking about pausing interest rate hikes in September at the Jackson hole meeting. Uh, they really haven't raised rates that much. We haven't, I mean, we started the, the balance sheet runoff yesterday. Uh, and I mean, even if you look at the ISM report, you know, price action came down, but it didn't come down even as much as they were estimating. So we're not seeing, we're seeing inflation come down, but we're seeing it come down, you know, in a very, very nominal way. It's not, you know, falling quickly. It's not it's going from, error. it's not going from eight to six. It's going from, you know, eight and a half to 8.1. And it's like, you know, I, I think they need to be more aggressive. They're more aggressive than maybe this happens, but I just don't think this is a realistic outcome. I agree with you. I think that, uh, I, I think the Fed is running a dangerous road here by looking at some of these statistics in terms of total output. So when you think about total output, that is your inflation plus your actual real output. And that'll give you your headline number. Now, when you strip that out, you break it into its component parts, you break it into an inflation component, and you break it into a real gross component. Um, now, if that headline number is coming down, it could be because inflation is coming down, but it could also be because real growth is coming down as well. And in the last two weeks, we've seen the Atlanta Fed take its GDP number from 2% plus to 1.3%. And so we know that real growth number is coming down and that's coming down rapidly. The um, inflation component though, we'll know a lot more next week when we get the CPI number on Friday. So that'll be an interesting one. And that leads up to the Fed meeting on the 15th. Uh, switching gears a little bit, uh, we're trying to get a hold on inflation. Part of that, the Biden administration is trying to exert a little bit more pressure on Saudi Arabia to pump more oil. And it seems like they may be doing that. There was a note out of a source from OPEC Plus today that said they will potentially increase the output by 600,000 barrels a day in the month of July, that's up from an expected 400,000 barrels per day. So that would be a good news on supply. Biden has a little bit of a history though with the Saudis. When he first came into office, uh, he said that he wasn't gonna be meeting with the Crown Prince, uh, MBS, uh, instead because he blames the M MBS for the 2018 murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Um, but MBS controls basically the supply of oil in the world. And so the thinking is that Biden is going to meet with uh, MBS actually at the end of this month in an olive branch and a desire to increase the production of oil. Georgia is in the enviable position of having the lowest gasoline price in the United States right now. So good for Georgia. Uh, part of that's helped by Brian Kemp's 30 cents a gallon uh, elimination of the tax of the uh, gas tax holiday. Uh, so we have four dollars and nineteen cents. National average is four seventy two. Just for perspective, California average gasoline price. This is an average is six dollars and twenty one cents a gallon. Six dollars and twenty one cents for one gallon of gas, and you're not getting far on a gallon of gas in Los Angeles. Uh, Tom, any comments on this? How this is going to impact inflation? It seems like this is good news. Oil is down today. But will that continue? I mean, it's really tough to say. I just don't think it's enough. 600,000 barrels is not nearly as much as you think. It sounds like a lot, but it really isn't in terms of, you know, daily use. Uh, it's 0.5% of global consumption. Right. So, I mean, like, you know, if you if assume we've been running at a deficit for, you know, call it six months now, you know, you're really only getting back, 
you know, a couple of days worth of production for the whole year at this rate. Uh, I just think that there's, there's just too many, uh, too many pieces moving in the oil space right now. I mean, until we get some sort of resolution on Russia, uh, you know, until we get some sort of resolution here in terms of drilling or expanding on oil leases that, you know, some of these big companies have, I just don't think there's going to be a lot of relief. I don't see an end on that, but the upside there is the higher oil prices go, the more demand that's going to suck up, the more dollars that would be going other places are going to go there. And that could potentially bring down inflation despite, you know, being a piece of pushing it up. Um, so it's definitely something we're keeping an eye on. It's not ideal. You know, I personally am pretty angry at the Saudis uh, for stealing Dustin Johnson from the PGA Tour uh, for their new upstart uh, competitor in golf. Um, but, you know, that's really my, my little axe to grind. Last two things uh, we'll hit on really quickly. Sheryl Sandberg is leaving Meta. Uh, no, Facebook is changing its ticker symbol to Meta next week on the 9th. Um, she's been the COO at Facebook for 14 years, really credited with expanding a lot of the advertising business. It will be a shakeup at the company. Uh, I think the biggest thing that remains to be answered is how will Zuckerberg's leadership of the company look now? I think when it's been the two-headed monster of Zuckerberg and Sandberg, that's been one thing. Uh, when it just becomes Zuckerberg, uh, he can get distracted and he has been distracted in the past. Sandberg's often brought him online. Question is, has, does he have that sufficient maturity at this point? in his career. Sandberg will remain on until September to help with the transition. She will remain on the board, uh, but she will not be involved on the day-to-day -day business. Ford plans a major economic announcement today at 9 a.m., so just in about 10 minutes or so, uh, talking about how it's transforming its global automotive business and accelerating development and scaling of its electric and connected vehicles. There will be a press event at 10.30. I don't know, man. I think that this could be and through no fault of its own, but Ford may have bungled the timing on this when it's connected with an ADP employment report like we just had. Yeah. I mean, they're so heavily tied into unions. They're probably going to have to cut off jobs uh, sooner rather than later. Um, I think unlike maybe last year when GM did their major economic announcement around uh, electric vehicles, it, it'll be a little bit worse received. I mean, last year, electric vehicles were so hot. Everyone was feeling awesome. Everyone was talking about getting one. Uh, and maybe could have afforded one, uh, but I just feel like it's a little bit of a bad timing situation, uh, you know, to roll out a bunch of, you know, high five digit, low six digit vehicles uh, at a time where gas is so expensive that, you know, people probably won't be able to afford buying one, uh, even if they wanted to. I, yeah, I, I hope that uh, it ends up going well for Ford, just for the overall economy and, and, for, and for people and jobs, but uh, it could be one that we look back on and say, man, all-time case, bad timing. Yeah. So, uh, all right, we'll leave it there. Sorry we went long tomorrow. We have the big jobs report number, so uh, please be with us. We'll try to be a little bit more brief, uh, but big number uh, that, that we'll be focused on. Thanks.